0: You're listening to the Phil Klein Dental Podcast from VivaLearning.com. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Phil Klein. In today's episode, we'll explore the science behind tooth sensitivity, dissect the various reasons why it occurs after restorative work, and arm you with the knowledge you need to navigate this common clinical challenge. We'll discuss strategies using glass ionomer for preventing postoperative sensitivity and silver diamine fluoride for the use in arresting caries. Our expert today is Dr. Jeff Brusha. Dr. Brusha is currently an assistant professor at the University of the Pacific Degoni School of Dentistry and is in private practice focusing on aesthetic and restorative dentistry in San Francisco, California. He is the 2011 recipient of the Gordon J. Christensen Recognition Lecturer Award and the 2021 recipient of the Goldstein-Burning Bush Award for Excellence in Dental Education. In 2010, Dr. Bruscha was elected a fellow in the American Academy of Aesthetic Dentistry and presently serves as its president. Dr. Brusha, thanks for being on the show.
1: Excited to be here with you.
0: Yeah, it's been a long time. We did some work uh, on education many years ago, and uh, you've been on my radar, but for some reason you came up recently, and I'm glad you did because there's no better person to talk to about glass ionomers and actually silver diamine fluoride for that matter Than you. So, uh, I'm excited to have this conversation. So, to begin the podcast, when a dentist sends the patient home after a restorative procedure, there's always that possibility that the patient will experience some level of post operative sensitivity. You know, nothing's perfect. Uh, We don't know what's going on on a microscopic level in the pulp. So, even if you do everything right, there's still a possibility of the patient going home having post op sensitivity. So, I think it's our job to minimize that if possible. So, to begin, tell us what the main reasons why we have, generally speaking, post-operative sensitivity uh, in in the dental profession, and what can be done to minimize it or even virtually eliminate it?
1: Well, there's a loaded question. Uh, so being an endodontist yourself, we must always confirm that the tooth does not have any type of irreversible pulpitis, uh, and so that's something that should be confirmed Uh, very early on in the diagnosis before treatment. So assuming that the pulpal tissue is is healthy, then we can make some assumptions that that sensitivity is is reversible pulpitis. And then it brings to the podium two large uh, areas of discussion. And you're going to have battles at the podium with one side of the podium saying, Phosphoric acid for everything, and and the other podium is going to be saying no phosphoric acid, at least on the dentin. and And I will tell you that that anybody that believes that phosphoric acid on dentin creates sensitivity uh, is not uh, has not mastered the proper adhesive technique. Uh, I am a total etch person. I'm not saying that's. The very best way to be, that's just a statement, that I place phosphoric acid 100% of the time on dentin. Uh, And I've been in the same practice location now for 35 and a half years, seeing the same population of patients and not to ever uh, feel like I'm standing on a soapbox, but sensitivity is just a non-issue in my practice, it really doesn't exist. And on those rare, rare times that it might be an issue, I know that it is not due to the adhesive interface. The adhesive interface will cause the majority of sensitivity for most doctors. The only other issue could be a lateral interference. And so on that very rare occasion where a patient may come back with post-operative sensitivity on a crown, uh, and and I know that the adhesive interface was done to ideal, then I'll look for a lateral interference, I'll find it, I'll eliminate it, and the sensitivity is gone.
0: But just to clarify, Dr. Borussia, the adhesive interface may be the culprit as far as tooth sensitivity, but not if your technique is sound. Is that right?
1: Correct. And that's okay. what I'm going to take the deep dive into now. I have to oh, perfect. First of all, eliminate the occlusal interference, uh, which is extremely rare if you're always looking for occlusal interferences. Uh, but we do have patients with anterior open bites uh, that will not have anterior guidance. And then the shape and the anatomy that we place in our posterior teeth has to allow uh, that, that guidance without an interference. So moving into the adhesive interface, there's the etch versus the no etch. And again, I think if technique is done well, that's not an issue. And I will support for any number of reasons, whether you elect to be a uh, total etch or in today's world, a selective etch, because the chemistry uh, currently available, well, definitely is not acidic enough to achieve long-term bond strength to enamel without an etching pattern so then you come down to the the chemistry itself when you're looking at denton bonding and you you have what i call sim- simple chemistry and complex chemistry and that's exactly opposite of what the audience will think i think complex chemistry is the one bottle systems i think the simple chemistry is a multiple bottle systems but the manufacturers bring it to us in the exact opposite way. They tell us the simplified adhesives are the one bottle systems and the complex adhesives are multiple bottle systems. When you look at what you're trying to achieve with that chemistry, it's much, much more difficult to achieve the goals of that adhesive interface when the hydrophilic and hydrophobic materials are in the same bottle. Your technique has to be five times as good as it does when the bottles are separate. So anybody that knows me knows that I always speak and use separate bottles. And so when the bottles are separate, you're able to completely saturate that dentin with the primer. When you've saturated that dentin with the primer, you've resealed that dentin. And then the second bottle is your link between a hydrophilic tooth structure and a hydrophobic material. And that will achieve the highest density, uh, most stable, what would be referred to as hybrid layer, that layer between your composite and your tooth structure. When the chemistry is all together, what I would call complex chemistry, it's more challenging, not impossible, but more challenging to get adequate primer to saturate that dentin because the adhesive is in the way. So, we're not going to talk about the step by step techniques today, but understanding that your technique has to be driven by the goals. And the goals are to saturate that dentin with adequate primer and then to seal with your resin. Bond strength is going to be critical when you look at sensitivity. So sensitivity for many people is is a tug of war. Your bond strength versus your shrinkage stress of your composite. And if your bond strength is less than the shrinkage stress of your composite, it will open up a gap. And that gap will cause that sensitivity.
0: So in reality, Chairside, how difficult is it for the clinician to get a really acceptable prime against that dentin using a one-bottle system?
1: I will say it: it is much more difficult to achieve an acceptable saturation rate when the primer is mixed with the adhesive. I choose to not use that. Uh, I know a, a number of lecturing uh key opinion leaders do. And so I would not want to say that they're not able to achieve acceptable levels. I will say that it is much more technique sensitive and much more technique uh, driven when the primer and adhesive is mixed.
0: Is there any real study that shows that when using the single bottle technique versus the multi-bottle that you use, that in the single bottle, the primer is not reaching acceptable levels of activity, which in effect may result in to sensitivity.
1: Not directly to sensitivity, but there's been hundreds of papers that look at bond strength. And what we were just going with was bond strength. So clearly the adhesives with the highest long-term bond strength all have one thing in common. They are multiple bottle systems. Okay. So, and again, each one of these topics is an hour-long discussion, and I know we have this small window of opportunity. So, I'm trying to give the uh, the cliff notes on it. So, I'm just trying to pick the points, and then doctors that are struggling in each one of these points needs to follow up with an all-day program on these different areas.
0: Which you give, by the way, and speaking to my audience, uh, we're going to be giving some contact information. Uh, on Dr. Brucia's training program at the end of this podcast. So uh, if you have any questions or if you want to learn from someone who really understands what's going on in dentistry with these kinds of materials and getting the best results, there's no better person to talk to or learn from than Dr. Brucia. And we'll be giving that contact information out at the end of the program.
1: Well, thank you. That's nice. You know, one one thing that I'm very proud of is, is I'm a full-time practicing dentist that sees patients uh, eight to 10 hours a day, four to five days a week. Um, and when, when this stuff works, dentistry is so much easier. I could not imagine doing dentistry when I was constantly struggling with problems. Mm -hmm. And so
0: post-operative sensitivity is something none of us want. I mean, that's just a terrible thing to have when you work so hard to make something look so beautiful. You restore the tooth. The patient's numb. They're thrilled when they walk out of their office because they don't feel anything. And then they go home and then they suffer from post op sensitivity. So continue on, Dr. Boucher, because you were talking about getting into the bond strength and shrinkage issue.
1: So again, many, many layers to this conversation, but bond strength is critical. So an adhesive that allows for higher bond strength will allow for greater shrinkage stress uh, at when you place the composite on. And we're get into that if we have time. Uh, but uh, if you have very low bond strength, then your shrinkage stress plays a much greater factor in forming a gap, causing sensitivity. Chemical compatibility. Uh, you know, you have much greater challenges with these complex chemistry system, systems When you get into dual-cured, when you get into self-cured, when you're placing a buildup in there, when you're using uh, any other type of initiator other than a light-driven initiator. And that's a whole different conversation. But these complex chemistry systems have a significant problem with chemical compatibility when you start to change what you layer on top of it. So as this discussion evolves, a a cliff note approach is what can dentists do? Uh, Well, you can learn the proper techniques. You can match your adhesives with your clinical needs, but there's a few simple things you can do to start off Monday morning. You can start by after light curing your adhesive, lay a fingernail thickness of a flowable composite and light cure that. Uh, using that basically is a second layer of adhesive, a hydrophobic layer. That's going to help a lot of patients. Something that's even easier than that is, is, is grab a glass ionomer, a glass ionomer liner placed over the horizontal floor of every restoration and for me that's going to be the pulpal floor and that glass liner liner can be in the form of of a of a very thin material um i i, I love the the product protect uh from reva uh reva also has the only single dose glass ionomer adhesive and that glass ionomer adhesive called reva bond that can be really an incredible rmgi liner you can use a good RMGI cement if you wanted to use as a as a liner.
0: This goes directly on the dentin floor, the horizontal dentin floor. Directly
1: on the dentin floor, and so if I was using a glass ionomer, I would use that before I placed the adhesive.
0: Right, that's what I was going to ask. Using right,
1: a blowable composite, I would use that after placing the adhesive.
0: Right, because the glass ionomer bonds with the dentin you don't need an adhesive correct correct right so that becomes just dentin replacement and you're you're kind of moving the pulp away from the interface a little bit further by layering that glass armor on i mean it's just relative
1: you're doing so much more than that i mean we can call it a liner or a base but you are absorbing the stress when we talk about shrinkage stress the, the glass ion is going to absorb so much of the stress of that now curing adhesive because there's stress when your adhesive is curing and there's stress when your composite's curing. Um, and so, just looking at some bullet points with that first question you said, and, and I want to get to a couple of other areas, I think that's just looking, scratching the surface of that question.
0: And what about the cytotoxicity of glass ionomer close to the pulp?
1: So no material that has resin. uh, uh, And even glass ionomer, pure glass ionomers that are relatively acidic should be placed within a half millimeter of pulpal tissue. We have some pretty incredible bioactive materials, and we don't have time to get into that. That would be a whole nother program. When you look at the tricalcium silicates, Um, and like materials like that, they do have a place. Uh, But for me, I am less concerned about proximity to the pulp if my technique is, is very, very good, unless I have left some infected or affected dentin, or unless I have an exposure. And then my technique becomes very different, and my material selection becomes very different and that's what
0: and that's what i'm gonna coerce you to do another podcast with me on because yeah that's a very exciting topic to me as an endodontist and our audience always wants to hear about those cases that are very deep and i've heard some dentists on podcasts where they actually know they're leaving infected dentin over they know it but uh they mentioned something about the hall technique which was something that was done on kids where they just literally had to take care of these teeth quickly and they just put stainless steel crowns directly on top of decayed teeth and they came back whatever time later and there was it, the decay basically stopped uh and nothing went further on but anyway that's a whole nother discussion so whole nother
1: discussion <laughs> yeah so
0: you covered you covered this really well dr Bruscia. let's and you you mentioned the importance of glass onomer and um you know there's so much that glass onomer does obviously it it, it has strontium ions in it and it enhances tooth remineralization and, and so forth. And we can talk about that on future podcasts. And you mentioned a, a product that you like, which which everybody should take seriously because your recommendations go a long way. And I think that was Riva from SDI. Um, let's talk about silver diamine fluoride. Now that is a product that's been used, that's a material that's been used for decades in Japan, pro- almost a hundred years they've been using this in Japan. Uh, re- it got FDA approval in 2014 here didn't really catch on tremendously fast in the States. Um, but lately we see more and more dentists using silver diamine fluoride. So could you talk about the uses and indications for this material?
1: And and there again is, is a, a wide open topic. Uh, you know, silver diamine fluoride, uh, I, I, I will have to just reference my father because my, my father was 106 and just passed away in May but he was a we a dentist that started practicing dentistry in 1946 and when he saw the the silver diamine fluoride uh, a cover from the American Dental Association that it I believe in 2013 2014 it it received FDA approval he started just with a gut laugh because he was u- using silver nitrate mm-hmm. back in the 50s and 60s to arrest decay so This whole thought um, is much, much older than most people realize um, and has been around for a long time. So the FDA is now allowing us on label to use as a desensitizer. Well, for me, um, sensitivity really, as we talked about, falls into adhesive techniques, and I'm not going to really need a, a silver diamine fluoride product as a desensitizer but off-label, silver diamine fluoride can treat active decay. And so now we get into why would we want to use a product like silver diamine fluoride to treat uh, active decay off-label? And so uh, pediatric dentistry. So one thing I I don't see, I don't see any children. Uh, I don't see any patients under the age of 16 to 18. But if I were, and one of the main reasons that I don't children is my lack of skills in managing children. Um, And, and so I would say working on a child is like changing a a tire on a car that's moving and uh, near, near impossible. And so (laughs) silver diamine fluoride creates an opportunity where you may have a very unmanageable environment and you can simply buy time for that child without uh, a aggressive medical, uh, approach to that. Um, for my practice, it's adults and it's the older adults. And so I use silver diamine fluoride as a, uh, management, a triage. Uh, sometimes it's long-term treatment with nothing other than silver diamine fluoride. Sometimes it's, uh, managing spotting a deep area at a hygiene appointment, knowing that I'm not going to be able to get that patient back in my schedule on the restorative side for three or four weeks. So myself or my hygienist placing some silver diamine fluoride to arrest that decay. And then I can come back in and do definitive treatment. Uh, For my long-term triage, we have older patients. And my dad being one of those patients uh, for the last eight years where I was managing his, older dentition with silver diamine fluoride and then an anti-caries management pH control protocol. And so that's so important. Um, Looking again at complex and simple. So right now I do believe we have two forms of silver diamine fluoride. We have one bottle and we have two bottles. They're very, very different. Um, One of the big Yellow or red flags with SDF is going to be uh, silver discoloration. Well, that that silver discoloration can be managed with one of the two products, much better than the other. The application uh, time and technique is very different. So, in the one bottle system, uh, you are required following uh, the 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 uh, isolation of the area and the just remove of loose debris you've got to place a one minute application of the one bottle system in the two bottle system that has the potassium iodine in it it's a rapid one drop of bottle number one and then if triaging an area it's a one drop of bottle number two without scrubbing and you have provided an environment that now creates a much stronger bacterial shield you are doubling the level of fluoride and 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 you are um, sealing that environment in fact I'll take it one step further if you were to do a, a 15 second phosphoric etch as as dr. Knight has written about in several of his papers, you get even better bacterial seal with the two-bottle system. Um, if you want to incorporate silver diamine fluoride in with a restorative procedure, then the only difference in my technique, per articles that Dr. Knight has written, is you continue rubbing the second bottle until the precipitate, the white precipitate is gone, and then you move to like a, a, a RMGI adhesive. Like a Riva bond, um, I've done both ways. I've done triage care that's worked incredibly well. I've done long-term triage care, and then I've incorporated silver diamine fluoride in with the sandwich technique of glass ionomers and composites. Sometimes a mix of it. Uh, something that I'll do for some patients is when I'm getting this 360 uh, root decay that's very difficult to manage and they have a crown on that tooth, sometimes I'll remove that crown and make uh, a temporary crown, like using a Luxa crown from DMG, which is a much more rigid, stronger crown. But then I'll cement that crown on with RMGI. I'll use my Reva Lutine Plus. That becomes my definitive restoration. If I know that environment is unmanageable, now that procedure is going to cost the patient about one-third, one-fourth as much as a, permanent crown and now I have the opportunity every two three four years to take that crown off if there is more 360 decay make another one and and now I can go in and make a almost replaceable crown and I can do that over a series of nine to twelve years for what many dentists would charge for one permanent crown there's it, what I've learned is root decay is not specific to anything. It will find a new crown. It will find a 40-year-old crown. It will find unrestored
0: tooth structure. Those DMG crowns that you mentioned are super useful, and they're relatively new. And uh, I've heard a lot of doctors talk about those DMG crowns. And they, they, some of them say they've had them in for over five years, and they look like new. So I've got
1: bridges that, for the same reason, that are in five years and doing well.
0: Yeah, it's a great product. And I'm really glad they came out with that. So this is really kind of exciting to hear that you could use silver diamine fluoride for these kinds of cases where otherwise the tooth might have been extracted. And let me ask you this. Over time, when you're using silver diamine fluoride for a long-term triage, how often do you have to rejuvenate? that SDF with another application?
1: So I, I really think it's product dependent. Um, I, I will tell you from what I have read that the two bottle system is going to be my preference. And uh, I am finding that the two bottle system is working so well that when I'm using it in triage, the protocol is basically reapplying If needed, every six months.
0: Okay, who Um, who sells that? Is that SDI from? Is that the Australian company SDI?
1: The the star is the SDFKI product, Um, and and again, that has a very different application technique. Um, You must align your application technique with your product. But if you're looking for the most rapid application technique, the SDFKI product, Reva Star actually has a much shorter application time for a better result. Um, throw in some phosphoric acid for 15 seconds on the dentin, and that takes it to a different level. Um, so even with a 15-second phosphoric acid, uh, with the, with the two-bottle system, my application time still 30, 45 seconds. With the one-bottle system, my application time is a minute minimum.
0: Right, and with the growing demographic of geriatric patients and root decay, like you said, it's uh, it doesn't really discriminate where it's going to attack. Whether it's a crown that's been put in or a major roundhouse or whatever, it's just going to go after the root, no matter what kind of restorations on there or how good it is. And this kind of treatment is really invaluable. Really yeah. invaluable. Yeah.
1: And and I must say that if you're following the triage technique with the uh two bottle system if you do not continue to rub the ki bottle material um, until that white precipitate uh, does form you will see discoloration but you will get a better seal um, in a open exposed area if you leave that a white precipitate there and not continue to massage it. So if I were doing my SDF application as part of, the de- of a definitive restoration, I would place my second bottle uh, and rub and reapply until the white precipitate was gone. That's going to greatly lower the risk of silver discoloration. The use of phosphoric acid is going to greatly reduce the risk of 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 silver discoloration with the two bottle system that's never been tested with the one bottle system if i'm truly looking for triage and want a better bacterial shield uh, in an open cavitated area then i would simply place one application of the of the ki leave that white precipitate and not wash off Let that that patient go home with that white precipitate. So two very Mm -hmm. different techniques aligned with what my definitive treatment is.
0: This has been very helpful, Dr. Brucho. Tell us where our audience can get a hold of you uh, through email or a website if they want to get some additional training.
1: So uh, I'm still... Relatively active on the large dental meetings, uh, be it Henman this coming year. I I think I'm going to be at um, ADA next year, California Dental Association. Uh, So I'm still doing some of the larger meetings, but those are, you know, very intense lecture programs only. Um, I I have had a study club. Uh, Many people may be aware of it, FACE, Foundation for Advanced Continuing Education, that that was founded back in 1974 by my mentor and so if you go on to the aesthetic professional site uh, face dentistry.org um, uh, just google uh, face dentistry and uh, face dentistry.org will pull up and then uh, there's some contact information for me there the face study club is a much more intense uh, minimum five-day program but that's really the very very best way to take a deep dive and in all of this even in my all-day lectures i still can just scratch the surface on as we get into some of the more advanced um areas and you know a a, an excellent dentist has to be well trained not only in all the areas that we've talked about but occlusion and and so many other factors are so important For the long-term success of our restorative dentistry and and it can be a little overwhelming when you realize how many things you do not know Uh, but dental school makes us all safe beginners we hope we are safe beginners when we come out of dental school and then it's a journey I've been out of dental school 35 and a half years and I just took a five-day hands-on program uh, with Pascal Manier a good friend of mine and I I wanted to see what Pascal was, was now teaching. And there's a perfect example of someone that's been practicing 35 and a half years, been teaching most of those years. And, and I still want to take a deep dive into continuing education. And the way that I want to learn is in a small group, uh, and I want to learn in a hands-on environment. I want to learn where I can interact with that instructor over multiple days and and develop a a, a friendship with those people.
0: Just in closing, your father lived till 106. Did he practice dentistry until when?
1: He he graduated from dental school in 1944, uh, was uh, practicing in the Army for two years, opened up his practice in San Francisco in 1946 with my mom. And they continued to practice together until 1992. So I graduated in 1988, and we got to practice for four years together uh, before I bought a computer and scared him away.
0: Yeah, there you go. Yeah, unbelievable. 106 years old he lived to. That's remarkable. You got a whole long career ahead of you, Dr. Brucia. <laughs> Dr. Brucia, thank you so much for being on the show. Incredible amount of information you've packed in in these past 30 minutes. Have a great week, and thank you again for your time great. Thank you. If you're enjoying our podcast, please leave a review or follow us on your favorite podcast platform. It's a great way to support our program and spread the word to others. Thanks so much for listening. See you in the next episode.